I'd invite the rest of you, if you have a Bible, to go ahead and open up your Bible as we keep going through the book of Ephesians. We're in Ephesians chapter 4, and I did provide some study notes for you in the bulletin there. As we continue our study, Paul's letter to the Ephesian church, the church that he started. He planted that church, pastored that church for three years, raised up leadership, left, and then was following up on their maturity. So it's been good going through the book of Ephesians. We're hitting towards the middle of Ephesians chapter 4. Last week we covered Ephesians chapter 4, 7 through 10. This week we're looking at verse 11. And just a couple of reminders as we look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, I said it was a unit, 1 through 16. Keep in mind that when the Apostle Paul wrote this 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul did not use punctuation like we have in America. They didn't use punctuation. They didn't use periods and capital letter here, small letter here, those kind of things, commas, semicolons. He just wrote the letters out. So it's like one long sentence, really. And you determine where the breaks are based on the context of, of, and the content of what Paul is saying. But we do know just from the content, in verses 1 through 16, Paul has a complete thought he's trying to communicate to the Ephesian Christians, which we also need to understand. And his main point is, is that Jesus Christ is trying to grow the church. Jesus is trying to grow the church. And Jesus is being successful, by the way, because anything Jesus tries, he accomplishes. So his goal is that Jesus is building the church, or God is building the church. That's the theme uh, mentioned. Look at specifically verse 12. We're not there yet, but there's a little phrase in there. Building up of the body of Christ. That's consistent with the theme of this whole passage. God is building the church. He's maturing the church. That means every local church that's abroad today, every local church that existed throughout history, and the universal church, all Christians for the last 2,000 years. God is growing and maturing the church in every, at every level, every conceivable way. So that is what we're talking about here, how God grows the church. And so this has application to us as a local church. It has particular significance to us as a church plant that's not even five months old because one of our greatest concerns, I know my greatest concern, is we need to grow as a church plant, don't we? Not only do we need to grow, we need to grow the right way. You can have a fractured arm and have it not put back together the right way, and then the bones will start growing together the wrong way, and then it will be dysfunctional and not very useful. So we don't want to just grow, we want to grow the right way. We want to grow in a healthy manner. We want to grow in an obedient manner. And in order to do that, we're supposed to grow the way God wants the church to grow, and that's the plan that's outlined here in Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. That's why this passage is so helpful, pertinent, and applicable to a church like ours. How does God grow the church? Well, he gets very specific on how he is going to or how he wants to grow a church. The question is, are we going to be obedient and put ourselves in a position to obey and submit to God and how he's growing the church. So let's go ahead and look at his strategy as he continues to tell us how he's going to grow the church. One of the key ways that God is going to grow the church, the foundational way, is it all starts with Christ. It's his church, isn't it? Amen. Christ, it's his church. He's going to grow the church, and he's given the strategy of how he's going to do it, and that's what we read last week, or that was the point, that Jesus Christ is the head of the church, and to grow the church, Christ is going to give gifts to the church. Gifts to people, and people are going to use those gifts whereby they use those spiritual gifts to help grow the church. So that's the context of what we're talking about here. Spiritual gifts that God gives Christians to help the church grow is where we left off. And we pick up in verse 11. And I'm going to read 7 through 11 because they go together as a unit. So let me go ahead and start at verse 7. But to each one of us, every Christian, grace was given. That was a gift of grace. According to the measure of Christ's gift. 
Therefore, it says in the Old Testament, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he, that is Christ, gave, this is the gift that he gave, he gave some to the church as apostles, and he gave also to the church some as prophets, and he gave also to the church some as evangelists, and he gave also to the church some as pastors and teachers. Okay, we're going to stop there. So how does God build the church? He builds it through Christ. It's Christ's church. So how does Christ build the church? By giving gifts to Christians because Christ wants to use us to help build the church. And then he starts specifically itemizing these particular gifts that he's entrusted to the church to help the church grow. Um, So I'm going to focus in on verse 11 where I came up with, I just want to look at those five words and why they're so important. But before we get to that, I just came up with some reminders regarding gifts. Let's go ahead and look at that on your handout there. Some preliminary points I want to make, some of which I've already alluded to. Point number one in your outline there is that Jesus promised that he would build his church. Isn't that refreshing and comforting? Puts me at ease. Man, I don't have to do it. Come on, pastor. Build your church. Um, Don't have to. Also, not qualified. Also, totally incompetent. Jesus builds the church. So he is the one that builds the church. He said, that was his promise in Matthew 16, 18. He prophesied and said, I will build my church. And he's going to be successful because he said, the gates of Hades are literally the gates of hell or the gates of death shall not overpower it. In other words, nothing on a human level, nothing on a satanic level is going to uh, cause Christ to fail in his work of building the church. So Christ has been building the church for 2,000 years, and he will continue to succeed until he has accomplished his goal. Christ builds the church. Uh, and then 1 Corinthians 3, 7, Paul commenting on this, God causes the growth. God causes the growth of every Christian and every growth that takes place in a church. Number two, Jesus left behind the plan and the resources to build his church. Wait, if Jesus is going to build the church, that's cool, but didn't he leave? He left earth and went back to heaven. No need to panic, because that's what the apostles were going to do when Jesus told them that he was going back to heaven. They panicked. That's why he said, be at ease, trust in me, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. Yes, I'm going to build the church, but I'm going to do it from a distance. Yes, I'm going to build your church, but I'm going to do it in abstentia. Uh, So he left behind the plan of how to build the church and the resources of how to build the church. What are they? Well, two things. The resources, the Holy Spirit. That's the power source of building the church. Before Jesus ascended into heaven, he gathered his apostles together and some of the disciples to encourage them and said, yeah, I'm still going to build my church, and yes, it is true, I am leaving. How am I going to accomplish that? Where are you going to get the power? And that was Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where he said, you, believers, Christians, shall receive power for building the church when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. How was going to God, how was Jesus going to build the church when he wasn't around? He was going to do it through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the moment some person puts their faith in Christ and becomes a Christian, they receive the Holy Spirit. And he becomes their power source as God utilizes that Christian to help build the church. Well, what is the plan? Okay, we got the power with the Holy Spirit. What's the plan to build the church? How do we do this in Jesus' absence? He, Jesus knew everything. So he could, if he was here, he could tell us how to build the church. But he's not here. So how do we do it? Well, he left his blueprint, his plan. That's his word, the Bible, Scripture. So Paul told us, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture said Timothy. So that meant the entire Old Testament, all 39 books of the Old Testament, 
and all 27 books of the New Testament. Paul knew he was writing scripture, authoritative scripture. He wrote 13 books in the New Testament. He knew it was scripture. He was commanded by God to write scripture. So Paul says all scripture that is written is inspired by God or God breathed or it came from God, not man, and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness in order that the man of God or in order that every Christian really may be adequate or sufficiently supplied, equipped for every good work, equipped to do everything that needs to be done in ministry for the purpose of building the church. The scripture is adequate and sufficient. We have the resources and we have the plan. We have the Holy Spirit and the Bible so God can continue to build his church. Which leads us to point number three. Jesus builds his church through believers, through Christians, for those, for, through those who are born again. Because again, Jesus went back to heaven. So how's he going to build the church? Well, he needs literally hands and feet and mouths to do it. So God has chosen, Christ has chosen to build his church through the ages to culmination through people, through human beings, through sinful, fallen, weak, finite human beings, mind you, but saved ones, believing ones, those who follow and know Jesus Christ personally. That's what Jesus decided to do. Could Jesus build the church by himself literally? Yes, but he has chosen not to. He's chosen to do it through his people, through Christians. So if you are a Christian today, regardless of your age, whether you're 11 or 71, God's plan is that he wants to build his church and he actually wants to use you in the process of doing it. He wants to utilize every Christian in building up his church, building up his kingdom. Uh, He said in Acts 1.8, we already read that, uh, you shall be my witnesses. You, Christian, you're going to be my representative. You're going to build the church on my behalf. 1 Corinthians 3.9, the Apostle Paul said this. This is a beautiful phrase. We, apostles and Christians in general, are God's fellow workers. We are God's literally co-laborers. We are going to work with Christ at building the church. That is our great privilege as a Christian. We're co-laborers with God. 2 Corinthians 5.20, we are ambassadors for Christ. What's an ambassador? It's somebody that fully represents their superior. So every Christian represents the Lord Jesus Christ with his authority. We're ambassadors in this world. So God wants to build a church through us. Ephesians 3.20, we've looked at this verse. God wants to use us to build the church according to the power that works within us through the Holy Spirit. He wants to accomplish the work of building the church. Awesome and great truth. So those are the three preliminary truths we need to be reminded of. Now let's go ahead and look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. Specific gifts that God is going to use to build his church. Well, when you build something like a, a building, first thing you have to a house, you've got to do what first? You've got to lay the foundation, right? That is absolutely essential. And you've got to lay a proper, solid, lasting foundation. Then after you've done that, then you can add everything else to it. And so that's the layout here. That's the plan. Ephesians 4.11 talks about how God gave gifts to the church to lay the foundation of the church. And then in verse 12, it talks about how he's going to build the rest of it. So verse 11 is how God started the church. Verse 12 is going to tell us how God is going to finish the church as he builds it. So let's go ahead and look at that. So verse 11, these are foundational gifts that God gave to the church. What are they? Well, the foundational gifts that God gave to the church to lay the foundation. By the way, this started back in Jesus' day after he ascended into heaven, sent his Holy Spirit. He began building his church through these foundational men or people who were gifted. Categories of people that were gifted. That's what he's saying. And Christ gave some to the church in order to build the church as apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. 
So there's five specific nouns that are mentioned, five specific categories of people, five specific people who are considered as gifts that God gave to the church to lay the foundation to get the church started. When did the church start? It started 2,000 years ago on the day of Pentecost. How did it start? It started with these five gifted categories of people that Jesus Christ gave to the church to lay the solid foundation. So let's look at these five gifted categories of people that God used to lay the foundation. And then uh, following that, particularly in verse 12, we're going to see how do we fit into the plan? Because God's building the church. Because I'm not an apostle, you might be thinking, or a prophet. How do I fit in? Well, you do fit in. Every Christian fits in, in a vital way. So let's go ahead and look at that. First thing that God did to build the church was he gave apostles, it says. The apostles. By the way, there's a parallel verse um, in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 28, and I put it on your handout there. Read, look at how similar it is to this verse, where it says, When Jesus started the church, in Ephesians 4.11, it says that he gave some as apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Paul says a similar thing in 1 Corinthians 12.28, when he said, And in the church, God has appointed, or he gave, notice there's a different phrase in there, though. First of all, apostles. Second of all, prophets. Then third, teachers. So that's significant. Paul is emphasizing there in Corinthians that there's a chronological sequence in order to the way that God built the church. And there's a chronological sequence to building a foundation of a house, isn't there? Before you lay the foundation, you've got to have cement, right? But before you lay the cement, you've got to have uh, the two-by-fours down and the rebarb and everything else laid out properly. So you've got to go in the proper order and sequence of events to lay a proper solid foundation. And that's what Paul is saying that the first thing that God needed to do to lay a proper uh, foundation was to have the apostles in order. And that's why during Jesus' three years of his ministry, he was spending most of his time investing in 12 guys that he called and commissioned as his apostles. Now, if you think about it, there were no pastors around when Jesus was ministering for those three years. He wasn't training pastors. The word pastor is never mentioned in the technical sense. And there were no New Testament prophets around when Jesus was training these 12 guys who were called apostles. Because Jesus knew, to lay the foundation, I've got to start with the apostles because they have a unique calling to laying the foundation of the church. So he spent over three years investing time in these 12 men called his apostles, his sent one. By the way, um, the word apostle means to send or a sent one or literally a formal representative of somebody else, an ambassador, if you will, that has all the delegated authority of the one who sent them. So that's what an apostle was. So the 12 apostles, Peter and all those guys, were formal representatives of the Lord Jesus Christ. They spoke on Jesus' behalf, literally, even after Jesus departed. So when Peter got up and said, Thus saith the Lord, that was just as equivalent and authoritative as Jesus himself speaking. So the apostles were the specific hand-chosen representatives of the Lord Jesus Christ who were trained by Jesus to lay the foundation of the church to start the church. By the way, we looked, if you flip back in Ephesians chapter 2 in our earlier study, look at chapter 2 in Ephesians. Uh, Starting at verse 19, we'll just read 19 and 20 and look at the foundation-laying ministry of the apostles where he's talking to the Christians in verse 19 of chapter 2. He says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You know God now but you are fellow citizens with the saints, or all believers, and you are of God's household, the church. Verse 20, and the church having been built upon the foundation of the apostles. So God built the church on the foundation of the apostles. They came first, chronologically speaking. Very important to keep that in mind. And the apostles, they accomplished their task. They ministered, they gave their life, 
Their job was to lay the foundation of the church. Some of the responsibilities that an apostle specifically had on behalf of Christ was to impart doctrine, the teaching of the church. So the apostles had access to direct divine revelation. I do not have that gift today. I don't believe anybody has that gift today. Direct access to the mind of God with ongoing direct revelation. That's what the apostles had. They were gifted with that. And they wrote that down. And that's what ended up becoming the 27 books of the New Testament. So the New Testament really was authored by the apostles. It is the apostles' doctrine as Jesus communicated it to them. And that became the foundation of the church. So that was a foundational, basic job of an apostle, to give the church doctrine by which it should function and grow. Um, Also, the apostles were given unique abilities that I don't see are going on today. They had supernatural abilities on a regular basis, basically to validate their ministry. Because anybody could walk around and say, I'm an apostle, couldn't they? We've had people do that throughout history. There are people who do that today. I am of Jesus. I am an apostle. Well, your next question is, prove it. That would be a logical comment. And so God endowed the apostles with apostolic credentials. If you're an apostle, then you should have apostolic credentials. And 2 Corinthians 12.12 tells us specifically what the credentials of an apostle were. It says the apostles went about their ministry proving that they were apostles authoritatively with signs or their credentials, which were what? Signs, wonders, and mighty deeds. That's what the apostles did. And those, the ability to do miracles. They could raise the dead or whatever it was. Do these miracles as God gave them the ability. It wasn't just to entertain people. It was to validate their ministry as they came and preached because they hadn't finished the New Testament yet. They couldn't say, Revelation 12 says, because... Revelation hadn't been written yet. So for Peter to speak authoritatively, to validate his ministry, God gave him the ability to do miracles. So that's 2 Corinthians 12, 12. The apostles had credentials to validate their ministry. Signs, wonders, and mighty deeds. So they were given by God to establish doctrine, also to lay the foundation of the church, to get it started, to raise up leadership in the church. Um, and by the way, the gift of apostle, I believe, is, was only temporary. It was only temporary. It was only for the time of the first century. It was only for the time period by which God would lay the foundation. And once the foundation was secured and laid and all the cement had been laid and all the piping underneath, done. You can tell the plumber to go home. Bye-bye. Now the, uh, the wall guys can come in. So then uh, the apostles faded off the scene. And there were a limited number of apostles, by the way. There were only 12 handpicked by Jesus. Then there was one handpicked by Jesus as an apostle to the Gentiles. That was Paul. And then there were only a handful of other men who were also given the gift of apostleship. They didn't have the office of apostle, but they had the gift of apostleship, which also coincides with what I I just told you here. These were associates of the other apostles who had the office of apostle to help lay the foundation of the church. Barnabas, for example, is called an apostle. He had the gift of apostleship. He had the ability to do miracles. He helped the apostle Paul lay the foundation of the church. He had access to divine, ongoing, supernatural revelation. But then Barnabas died off, and and Titus is referred to. Apollos is also referred to as an apostle, and those were men who had the gift of apostleship, not the office. But all of those men died, faded off, and we haven't seen true apostles since the first century. History validates that, that after the first century, the church as we know it doesn't have any record of anybody going around saying they were apostles. Now, there were false apostles here and there, sporadically throughout history, But the gift of apostleship was only temporary. 
to serve a specific purpose of laying the foundation of the church. And then God would have the apostles. And they were, they, by the way, the apostles also served as the first pastors or elders in the local church. They were the shepherds of the first church. So they had many functions. They were apostles. They had direct revelation, but they were also the shepherds too. But when the apostles faded off the scene, then they passed the baton on to another ministry that, w- that started in their wake, and that was uh, the ministry picked up by elders, pastors, overseers to continue to shepherd the flock all throughout history. So today we have pastors, elders, overseers, and we're going to see that uh, role in just a second. So anyway, that was the gift of apostleship, hand-selected for a very specific purpose for a unique period in the history of time. So let's go on. So God begins to lay the foundation. He uses the apostles, and also to lay the foundation, he used the prophets. If you go back to Ephesians 2.20... Didn't read the rest of the verse. The church was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Many times, apostles and prophets, those two words go together in the New Testament. The apostles and prophets, apostles and prophets. They went together for a reason, because God was going to use them to lay the foundation of the church. But prophets served a unique function. And again, 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says in verse 28, that in the church God appointed first apostles. They were the priority, chronologically even. And then second, prophets. So chronologically, the prophets came along. Like I said, Jesus went around and called 12 apostles. He didn't have prophets during the time of training the apostles. So chronologically, prophets come later. They were second in the foundation laying time of the church. What was the job of a prophet? By the way, the word prophet means, it's a compound word. It means to speak forth or to speak before. The emphasis on speaking, speaking the word of God. And the prophet in the New Testament He could speak the word of God as already written, or he could speak the word of God as direct divine revelation that nobody ever heard before. And many times that was true of the New Testament prophets. They would speak divine, direct revelation that was just as authoritative as as Scripture. And by the way, in the New Testament, they needed prophets with divine, direct revelation because the entire New Testament had not been written or completed yet, and it hadn't been circulated yet. So many churches, they needed to know, what does God want? And so many times God gifted a local church that didn't have the scripture with a prophet who had access to divine revelation. We know that from the book of Corinthians, there were legitimate prophets in Corinth with the gift of prophecy. Abusing it? Yes. Misusing it? Yes. Arrogant about it? Yes. But with the gift? Absolutely. And so Paul was trying to straighten out those prophets in Corinth. You have the gift, don't be arrogant about it, and use your gift the right way to edify the people. So along with apostleship, the gift of prophecy or prophets was for a limited time period. And it was only during the foundational laying time of the church. Because that's what it says in Ephesians 2.20. God laid the foundation of the church with the apostles and prophets. Once the foundation was laid, the ministry of the prophets went away and disappeared. And also, that is validated by Christian history. There are no prophets of God in the 2nd century all the way up through pretty much the 19th century of of Christian history. It's only in the 20th century, in the early 1900s, where all of a sudden there's a supposed resurgence of so-called prophets of God. You've got this 1900-year period where there aren't any, because I believe the gift was done away with. How can you say that? Well, because it's in the Bible. Listen to this, 1 Corinthians 13.8. Very important verse. 1 Corinthians 12... 13 and 14, the Apostle Paul is talking to the Corinthians primarily about the gift, the spiritual gifts, and specifically he concentrates on the gift of prophecy and the gift of prophets in the church. 
And like I said, Corinth had prophets in the church, but they were abusing their gifts in many different ways. So for 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14, Paul is hammering away, trying to straighten out uh, these Corinthians so that they have a proper understanding of the role of the prophet in the local church. And like I said, one of their problems was some of these prophets were quite arrogant and proud of the fact, I have the gift of prophecy. What is your gift? Oh, I just fold chairs. Oh, well, I'm more important than you are. Literally, that was the arrogant attitude they had. So Paul rebukes them. And then he reminds them with this, to put them in their place. By the way, prophets, by the way, those of you gifted with the gift of prophecy, 1 Corinthians 13, 8, where there is prophecy, it will be done away. Ouch, that was a prophecy that Paul gave, to do away with prophecy. 1 Corinthians 13, 8. Someday, prophecy will not even exist in the church as a gift, as an ongoing gift. Prophets will not exist during the church age at some point. And you know what? History validates Paul's prophecy came true. There are no prophets to speak of from the 2nd century on until the 20th century. Every once in a while, a supposed self-proclaimed prophet came up like Montanus, and he was tagged as a false teacher. And today we have all kinds of people running around saying they're prophets. Actually, all throughout history, people have come along in the name of God or Yahweh or even Jesus and said they were prophets and they were nothing but false prophets. That's how false religion starts. You ever heard of Muhammad in the 600s A.D.? Who got a little bit of the New Testament, but not not enough? Just enough to be dangerous? And then he became a self-proclaimed prophet of God? Started his own religion? And now it's the most dominant religion on planet Earth? And they're trying to take over the world. He was a self-proclaimed prophet of God. But according to the Bible, he is a false prophet. So... Plenty of people have come along. By the way, if you were to ask Muhammad, you know, I'm a prophet of God, because he did. In his hometown, he did that. I'm a prophet of God, and they chased him out of town. But remember, if somebody says, I'm a prophet of God, what you're supposed to ask him? Prove it. Because the credentials of an apostle were 1 Corinthians 12, 28. Signs, wonders, and mighty deeds. You know, you look back at the history of Muhammad, he never did any miracles. Never. Not one that I have ever read. So he can't be validated as a prophet. Also, another test to find out if somebody's a true prophet, you go back to the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, chapter 13 and 18, and it says two times that if somebody comes along and says, I'm a prophet, thus saith the Lord. And if what they say doesn't come to pass, two things. That person is not a true prophet. Number two, take him out and stone him to death because he is an abomination. Ouch. All you needed to do was say, thus saith the Lord, give a prophecy one time, and you were to be executed and written off as a false prophet. So we got all kinds of people all throughout history and even today saying, I am a prophet. The question is, we should be examining their prophecies to see if they're true and if they're doing any miracles on the level that Jesus and the apostles did. I don't see it happening. That's because Paul said someday, 1 Corinthians 13, 8, prophecy will be done away. Why will it be done away? It will be done away when we have the entire New Testament and the sufficiency of everything we need to build the church. And once the foundation was laid, we don't need to keep laying the foundation. And the prophets were part of the foundation of the church. As a result, we don't need them today. It's just like I said, with respect to false religion, all kinds of self. Joseph Smith came along in the 1820s and said at the age of 16 that he was a prophet of God. And then he ended up giving a whole bunch of false prophecies throughout his whole life. And he didn't do signs, wonders, and mighty deeds. And he created an entire religion as a result. And on and on it goes. The examples 
abound. So the apostles and prophets, a unique office, a unique gift that God gave for a unique period of time in history, and that was to get the church started. By the way, we don't need apostles and prophets today whose main responsibility was to give the church its biblical doctrine because, according to the Bible, once they uh, did all their prophecy and wrote everything down in the New Testament, all the doctrine the church needs is in our hands. It is totally and readily available. We have everything we need to know as a church. Everything you need to know as a Christian is in your New Testament. It is all delivered, done, final, finished. We don't need any more prophets. Look at Jude chapter 3, or Jude verse 3. Jude only has one chapter, verse 3. Jude, by the way, one of the 27 books of the New Testament, written towards the end of the first century, so like in the 80s and 90s, so it was practically one of the last New Testament books written. No doubt Jude, who is a half-brother of Jesus knew about the the ministry of the Apostle Paul, knew about the ministry of Peter, knew of all the scriptures that they had written, knew that they had preached the full counsel of God. So Jude knew, sovereignly and providentially, that he was one of the last men called to write New Testament scripture. And so listen to what he says in Jude, verse 3. He's talking to Christians. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith. Fight for the Christian faith. The faith, definite article. Something very specific. The things that you believe in. Your doctrinal statement, if you will, as outlined by the apostles. Contend earnestly for the Christian faith, notice, which was once for all delivered to the saints. It's a done deal. A completed transaction, said Jude. We have everything we need through the ministry of the apostles. So the total repository of everything a Christian needs to know and function in this world and everything the church needs to know to function in this world has already been delivered by God through Christ, through His apostles, via the written scriptures. Very important. And in light of that truth, there is no need for prophets today. Think about it. Somebody comes along and says, I'm a prophet of God. And then you listen to what they have to say. What do you immediately do if you're a Christian? You examine what they said in light of what? In light of Scripture, right? And if they are inconsistent with Scripture, then they are not a true prophet. Because it conflicts with what God has already revealed. Then the other option is, what they're going to say is consistent with Scripture, or actually, in fact, already been stated in Scripture. So what they have said is really superfluous. It's already been written down and given in the Bible. Therefore, prophets are superfluous today. We don't need them. If what they're saying is true, it's actually already true because we validate it in Scripture. It's already in the Bible. They're not saying anything new that is true that we need. So that's why there are no prophets today. So that's just a word of warning. So anyway, that's the unique gift. That God, those gifts that God gave the church to lay the foundation to build the church. So now the, the foundation of the edifice has been laid and now God begins to build up His church And those are the next three, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. So let's go ahead and look at those three gifts. What are evangelists, pastors, and teachers? Let's go ahead and look at evangelists. Uh, It's a compound word. The Greek word, literally, it begins with an E-U, which means good. Like in a eulogy, E-U, eulogy, that's when you say something good about somebody at their memorial service. When they can't hear you, compliment them. Eulogy, to say something good. So E-U means good. And then... EU, evangelism, it's to proclaim something good. It's to proclaim the good news. So that's what an evangelist does. He was literally supposed to proclaim the good news. And that's where we get the word evangelism from. By the way, the noun that is used here for evangelist, 
The noun form is only used three times in the New Testament. Most of the other times it's used as a verb. That's the more common usage. So the emphasis isn't necessarily on who the guy is, but on what he's doing. He's supposed to be evangelizing because it's a gift that he has. God, Christ gave certain people this gift, the gift of evangelism. Like I said, that term evangelist is only used three times in the New Testament. It's used in reference to Philip the evangelist in Acts chapter 21. And, or no, yeah, Acts chapter 21. And also in reference to Timothy who was called an evangelist. So you only have two examples of people who are specifically designated and called evangelists. Timothy and Philip. And if you examine their ministry, both Timothy and especially Philip, and you trace his ministry through the book of Acts, you're going to note uh, there was a twofold emphasis to Philip's ministry. He was traveling all over the place, and he was doing one thing. He was telling people about Jesus. He was giving them the gospel. And the most memorable example is in Acts chapter 8, when he met up with the Ethiopian eunuch. Remember that guy? Who was actually had a text of Isaiah 53, reading about this persecuted, suffering servant, whoever it was. And he asked Philip the evangelist, who is this? And Philip told him, that is Jesus, the Messiah. And then Philip gave him the gospel. He gave him the good news. That's evangelism. Evangelism is telling somebody the good news about Jesus. Who Jesus was, that he died and got punished in your place, that he rose again from the dead, that he reigns on high. And if you ask him into your life to be your Lord, to forgive you of your sin, you can become a Christian, born again and know God. That is evangelism, telling the gospel. It's a very specific calling. And so that's what Philip did. He's going from place to place, and he's proclaiming Christ. He would become, he was known, what we would call in our day, a soul winner, an evangelist. So it was almost a specialized ministry of winning people to Christ, planting the seeds of the gospel wherever he went. You know, some people are gifted by God in that. They just have a, a natural knack at doing it, a natural tact in talking with people about the gospel, a natural way of segueing into a conversation to talk about the gospel and who Jesus is and caring for people that they might come to know Christ. We have evangelists today, people who has, God has gifted Christians with the gift of evangelism, a natural, not a supernatural aptitude to share the gospel with people, to plant seeds wherever they go. I know people like that. I praise God for Christians that God has gifted to be evangelists, sharing the gospel wherever they go. Some high-profile evangelists today, soul winners and the likes after the model of Philip and Timothy might be a Billy Graham. Billy Graham, he's a simple guy. He's not a deep guy, but he's got the most important thing, right? And that's how you can come to know Jesus. And his son is the same way, Franklin Graham. Every time Larry King or somebody on television interviews Franklin Graham, he's actually kind of annoying because he never answers the question. They could ask him about something. He'll just say, well, Larry, every person needs to know Jesus Christ as personal Lord and the Savior and that he died on the cross for your sins and he rose again from the third day and ascended into heaven. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you can become a Christian. Okay, next question, Franklin. Uh, what do you think about what's going on in the Middle East? Well, thank you for asking, Larry. If you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, and I am not kidding. He was doing that and I was, I was laughing. He, he understands. I don't care what Larry says. I've got an audience of uh, 20 million people and they're going to hear the gospel. Um, so that's Franklin Graham and Billy Graham and Luis Palau is another one that God has incredibly gifted to be so focused on getting the gospel to the masses of people and then Greg Laurie would be the same thing Greg Laurie was here in our area not long ago so these are men of God that, that have the gift and there are women as well who are gifted with the gift of evangelism uh, Becky Pippert is a, a well known one very gifted at sharing the gospel and we have God has blessed our church our little church with people who have the gift of evangelism sharing the gospel wherever they go by the way Evangelists emphasize 
Part one of the Great Commission. Now, the Great Commission is in Matthew 28. We, we all know it, supposedly, right? What is the Great Commission? Uh, it's, well, it's, it's not getting people saved. That's not the Great Commission. Seeing people become Christians, that's not the Great Commission. That's one component of the Great Commission. The Great Commission is uh, make disciples by going. That's evangelism. Baptizing. That's after they get saved, you assimilate them into the church. And teaching them all things I have instructed you. That's discipling and nurturing a Christian till they reach full maturity in Christ throughout their entire life. So what is the Great Commission? The Great Commission is making disciples. How do you do that? Three ways. Evangelizing, getting them into the church. Once they're in the church, it is growing them in the Lord to full maturity until they die or until Jesus returns. So that's the Great Commission. Evangelists emphasize part one of the Great Commission. They're into planting the seed and seeing people come to know the Lord. And that needs to happen. People can't get saved without hearing the gospel. Praise God for the gift of evangelism and evangelists that he's given to the church to help us grow. Every one of us here that is a Christian is here because of an evangelist that God brought into our life. Think about it. It's, it's got to be, whether it was your mommy, your grandma, your neighbor, your uncle, somebody you met in college, God brought an evangelist your way. Planted the seed, watered the seed, and wanted, it was praying for your salvation, praying for my salvation. Absolutely vital to building the church. Uh, so that is evangelists and evangelism. By the way, I don't know if the technical office of evangelists still exists, but I do know that the gift of evangelism continues, right? People are gifted that way, and God has called every Christian to evangelize and share the gospel wherever they go, right? Every Christian is obligated to do that. You can't just say, oh, that's not my gift. Evangelism is not my gift. I'm not going to do it. Too bad. You lose. I would, I would fall into that category. Evangelism is not my gift. Talking to people on a church campus where I'm secluded from everybody, that's my gift. I don't have to go out in the world and talk to unbelievers. I'm not good at that. Uh, too bad, you have to do it anyway. God's called every Christian to do that. Some are just gifted at it. Okay, let's go on. The next gift that God gave to the church are pastors. God gave pastors as a gift to the church to help grow the church. <clears throat> By the way, this is in chronological order. Again, as Jesus was calling his 12 apostles, there were no pastors around or mentioned. They didn't exist yet. They would later, in the technical sense. And then when the church started, read the book of Acts, and you'll search in vain from Acts chapter 1 through Acts chapter 12 looking for a pastor. The word isn't even there. So you've got the first church in Jerusalem that's growing, started with 120 people, went to 3,000, went to 5,000 and beyond, and there's no mention of a pastor in, any, in the church or the ministry anywhere in the book of Acts for the first 11 chapters. Pastors didn't exist at that time. People who had the gift of pastoring or shepherding. By the way, the word pastor means shepherd. It's the same Greek word. There were people with the gift of shepherding. The apostles had the gift of shepherding. So technically, the apostles in the church in Jerusalem, they were the pastors of that church. Their office was apostle. Their duty was to shepherd. And that's what they were doing. They were shepherding the people. But the office of pastor came later. As a matter of fact, I believe the apostles handed the baton of shepherding onto pastors, or what God later called Elders, overseers, episcopos, bishops, they're all the same thing. That came later as the apostles faded away. So let's look at pastors. Um, I put a verse there, Acts 20, 28, where the apostle Paul is talking to the elders at Ephesus. He'd been with them for over three years. He was about to leave the church of Ephesus. He called all the elders of the church together, and he reminded them, saying, the Holy Spirit has made you elders, overseers, to pastor or shepherd the flock of God. The word for shepherd and pastor is the same Greek word in your New Testament, just so you know. And the word pastor 
is only used as a noun one time by the Apostle Paul, and it's in this verse. He only uses the word pastor as a noun one time. The rest of the time he uses a form of the word pastor, but it's always as a verb, which is shepherding. So the emphasis, again, is not on who you are. It's what you do. So according to New Testament uh, uh, terminology, I'm not so much a pastor as much as I am an elder and overseer, and what I do is shepherd people or pastor people. That's my duty. The The office is overseer. The qualifications are elder. The duty is shepherding or pastoring. So God was going to give certain people the gift of shepherding or pastoring in the church to help it grow, and that's exactly what he did. And so this gift of shepherding continues on. It's been going on for 2,000 years. They assumed the work of the apostles. It's a perpetual ministry of shepherding. Some other things we can... uh, So what is the responsibility of a shepherd or one who pastors? Basically, it's to care for the sheep in his fold. By the way, if you're a shepherd, you have a finite number of sheep you're responsible for. That's comforting, isn't it? Yeah, I'm shepherd so-and-so on that grassy hill over there, and I got 42 sheep. Don't touch them. They're mine. Or I've got 43 sheep. One of them's missing. Have you seen him? His name is Buford. Wandering shepherd. So a shepherd knew his sheep. He knew how many because there was a finite number in their flock. The same is true in the church. If God's called you to be a shepherd or shepherd the people at a local church, you need to know who your sheep are. There's a finite number of people you're responsible for, helping them grow, and also that you're accountable for someday. We'll have to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ to give an accounting for those I was supposed to be shepherding. And Jesus will ask very specifically, what about this sheep? Oh, he belonged in that flock over there. Jesus, by the way, he was a church hopper. So technically, well, anyway, we'll see how that pans out. But that's the teaching of the New Testament. Shepherds were local. They stayed at one church. In contrast to the evangelist, who was an itinerant, on-the-go guy proclaiming the gospel in a local church, but he wasn't confined to one local church. He was on the move. Philip was on the move. Timothy was on the move. A pastor, after the model of the Apostle Paul, Paul would go into a church. He would preach. He would stay. He would see people get saved. He would train up leadership. This leadership he expected to stay in that local church, like with the elders at Ephesus, when he left them. Okay, I raised you up. You got saved in this church. This is your church. You're the elders in this church. You need to stay at this church and shepherd this flock. You are not going anywhere. So that was the difference between a pastor or a shepherd or elder versus an evangelist. The shepherd had a local flock to attend to. This is where sometimes uh, even local pastors that we have in our day and age, I see some local pastors that, that are more gifted as evangelists, and they, they don't want to stay at their home church. They want to be all over. They want to be at everybody else's church, preaching the gospel and doing this ministry and seeing thousands and thousands get saved. And they're not spending all of their time necessarily at their local church, which is either it can be a good or a bad thing. And I I know of pastors like that. And I've even talked to them as they've talked to me, asking me to do certain things. Well, you know what? I don't think that's my calling or my gift. I see myself more as a New Testament shepherd, localized elder kind of a guy over a local church, content to spend the rest of my life here shepherding the the flock that God has given me, whereas I see that you're kind of an evangelist and God may have you on the move and on the go. And that's a good thing. That's okay. You just got to know what your gift is. But those ministries need to complement one another. Um, By the way, Luis Palau, he's an evangelist, but he has a home church. He's an elder in his home church. He's all over the place, but he's committed to the local church, which is the way it should be. Um, So pastors care for their sheep in their fold, those allotted to their care, as 1 Peter 5 says, with a long-term perspective on their church in a long-term manner and responsibilities, basic responsibilities are feeding the sheep, leading the sheep, 
protecting the sheep. And by protection, I mean primarily in terms of teaching of doctrine, healthy doctrine. That is the responsibility. By warning, by warding off intruders, the Apostle Paul told the pastors in Ephesus in Acts chapter 20 to do that. Protect the flock. Watch out for false teachers. Be on guard. Stay awake. Be alert. Watch out for it. Here it comes. So that's the duty of a pastor. And like I said, that in the New Testament, a pastor is an elder, is a bishop, is an overseer. Those terms are interchangeable, particularly in Acts chapter 20 and 1 Peter 5. Um, by the way, with respect to the role of somebody who has the gift of pastor as an elder, whereas the evangelist emphasized the first part of the Great Commission, and that was sharing the gospel, right? When Jesus said, go and make disciples, go evangelism, the pastor emphasizes part two and part three of the Great Commission. Jesus said, make disciples, going, baptizing. That's once you've secured believers, you assimilate them into the local church, teaching them all things. That's helping them grow in the faith. Part two and part three. So a pastor emphasizes part two and three in the Great Commission of assimilating people into the church and helping them grow, teaching all things that Jesus gave us to teach them. So you need evangelists and pastors. They have got to go together to complement the ministry and fulfill the Great Commission as Christ would have it. And then uh, let's go on to the last category, and that is teachers that God gave to the church. God gave the church teachers to help it grow. We need teaching. The word for teacher, didaskos, didaskos, where we get the word didactics from which is where we get the word teaching from. Teaching is didactics. Look in a dictionary. In the dictionary it says didactics is to instruct, to teach, to exposit. I thought that was interesting. That was in the dictionary. Expository preaching. Or to explain. Explain spiritual truth. We need teachers. Jesus was a teacher, says John 3. People called him rabbi. Paul was a teacher, 2 Timothy 1.11. That's how he identified himself as a, an apostle, prophet, and as a teacher. He was a teacher of God's word. And the role of the teacher is to explain, exposit what? God's Word. That's what we teach. That's what a Bible teacher is supposed to teach, or a pastor is supposed to teach spiritual truth from God's Word. That's his job. It's to help understand, or help people understand the Scripture and apply it to their life in practical ways. It's the role and the job and the priority of a biblical teacher. By the way, teaching, Paul says, it is a spiritual gift. And it's not just leaders in the church who have the gift of teaching, although that is what Paul is emphasizing in Ephesians 4.11. He's emphasizing people who are foundational in starting the church, but the gift of teaching goes on. There are teachers today that God has gifted. God has gifted men with the gift of teaching. There are women who have been gifted with the gift of teaching to teach spiritual things, and they need to teach it in the proper context of what God has laid out. Um, by the way, uh, in the New Testament, I didn't say this, regarding prophets... Men were prophets, but there were also some women we know who were also gifted with the gift of prophecy. Acts 21, Philip's four daughters called them prophetesses, female prophets. They had the gift at that time. Um, So today you have the gift of teaching that's ongoing, that God uses to educate the saints, to teach the saints, to equip the saints spiritually. We need teachers so, so that people can unfold the Scripture for us. I am totally dependent upon teachers every single week of my life. When I get up and speak to you, I don't have anything original to say. I got it from somebody else who was a teacher. Whether he was dead and wrote a great commentary and left the treasure for me so I can learn from him, he's still teaching me by what he wrote. I consider a good book on spiritual things a gift of teaching that God graced the church with so that we can learn the Scriptures. And some people minimize and marginalize the importance of good books on on the Bible or spiritual truth or even learning or teaching or teachers when we shouldn't. God gave teaching and teachers to the church so we can learn and grow, so we can understand the Word of God and apply it to our life. 
absolutely necessary. There are just things in the Bible I could never understand without a teacher, somebody gifted to explain it to me, to draw out the meaning so I fully understand it and then apply it to my life, and as a result, I can grow thereby. So we need the gift of teachers, and God has blessed us to do that. Um, we, knew, we need teachers, but we don't need a lot of them because James chapter 3, verse 1 warns the church, let there not be many of you who are teachers. So we need few teachers, few that are qualified, are qualified, that are called, that are trained, that are effective, that are holy, that are humble, but few, James said. Why? Because biblical teachers, spiritual teachers, are going to stand before the throne of Christ with a higher standard of judgment before God, a higher level of accountability because supposedly they know more. They've studied more. They're accountable for more information. Also, there's a higher level of accountability is because I am taking truth and passing it on to other people. And God forbid that I am misleading people away from Christ. And if you are, then there also is a higher level of judgment and accountability and fear that you have to face someday, particularly if you are a false teacher of spiritual truth. So the standard is high. It is frightening and it should be. It's humbling. So we need teachers. We need few teachers. We need few qualified, godly teachers. By the way, I think the role of teaching supplanted the role of the prophet because the prophet, basically all he did is he taught people. He edified Christians by what he said. But he usually did it with direct divine revelation. He got straight out of heaven. That isn't happening for teachers today. We're getting our divine revelation out of the written word of God and telling forth truth, which is what a prophet did. So the pastor supplanted the apostle, the teacher supplanted the role of the prophet, and so today we have an ongoing ministry of uh, pastoring and teaching in the church to help it grow. And that is how God laid the foundation 2,000 years ago, laid a solid, perfect foundation, and Christ is going to continue to build his church, starting with those men and those gifts. And also, the good news is, he's going to show us uh, in the next verse how he incorporates all of us in re- regarding our gifts and our role today. And it's an exciting prospect, so we look forward to that reality of how God is going to continue to build his church. Let's go ahead and, and pray and commit our time to the Lord and thank him for his word. God, I do thank you for our time together to be with the saints, to worship you. And God, thank you for the treasure of your word. As Jude said, it was the full repository of Christian truth that Jesus gave through his apostles so that we have everything sufficiently to grow as Christians and to grow as a church. And you've written it down for us, so there's no mistake. And God, continue to be our teacher through the Holy Spirit as we study the Word of God together so that you might every help every individual Christian in this church grow and also corporately as a church will grow to your glory. Uh, we give you the praise for it. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.